Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. I'm Jeffrey Mason, Research Manager at the Charter Cities Institute. Joining me on the podcast today is Joe McReynolds. He's an affiliated urban scholar with Keio University's Almazan Architecture and Urban Studies Laboratory in Japan. He's also the Chief for Global Information Operations and Cyber at the Center for Intelligence Research and Analysis, the China Security Studies Fellow at the Jamestown Foundation, and is a co-founder of the China Cyber Intelligence Studies Institute. He is the research editor and co-author of our main topic of conversation today, Emergent Tokyo, Designing the Spontaneous City. He is also the lead editor and co-author of China's Evolving Military Strategy and the forthcoming book, China's Information Warfare. We have a wide-ranging conversation on the emergent nature of Tokyo urbanism and urbanism more generally, as well as on China's military capabilities and the potential for conflict over Taiwan. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for coming on the show, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we get into our discussion of Emergent Tokyo and, and, and some of your other work, you have this really interesting sort of dual track background where you have done a lot of research and, and published both on urbanism. So obviously this 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 book on, on, on Tokyo, that's our, our main focus today, but also on Chinese national security issues. How did you come to arrive at this situation where you're you're a scholar of these two very different fields? Well, my day job is still in national security foreign policy. I'm kind of an, an urban studies academic on, on nights and weekends. Really how I came to it was working in national security and foreign policy. I spent my 20s traveling the world and I've always been fascinated by cities. And one of the things I realized as, as I traveled around the world was it was different cities working differently enabled very different modes of living. Almost the way I like to say is that they paint with different emotional color palettes and that there were concrete reasons for why that played out differently in different places, not just a sort of an airy cultural, well, Japan is like this mm-hmm. and Lebanon is like that. No, but, and also I studied Japanese in high school and college. I studied abroad in Japan. So I had a background in being able to engage with Japan and Japanese academic literature. And over time, I started to realize that just Tokyo was also the city in the world where the most different possibilities were being explored at once, different possibilities of how to live, how to form community, how to come together. I found that really fascinating, especially the ways that subcultures play out in Tokyo more robustly than other cities in the world. Like There are all these subcultures that exist all over the world, but most of the world, it's on the internet, or maybe they meet up at the convention twice a year, that sort of thing. But in Tokyo, these subcultures can take over real physical space in the city. And why is that? And so I always just assumed that I would never get the chance to actually formally study this. I thought it was just my personal growing passion over time. But then I started collecting primary source materials and just started exploring what might be possible. And after a few years, came an opportunity to become a visiting fellow at the Japanese Ministry of Defense. And so I used that visa to then become an urban studies scholar with Keio University in Tokyo. And I had one year to kind of attempt jumpstarting a whole second side of my life. An easy task. <laughs> uh, it was it was one of the most difficult and terrifying things I've ever done. And it came with huge costs in my life also. But ultimately, it did work out. It, it, somehow I'm able to be useful as an urban studies scholar and, and hopefully useful in my day job and in foreign policy, national security. So it seems to be working out crazily enough, but it was an obsession, a personal passion that then eventually became a side career. It's still, it doesn't exactly pay money or anything, but it's it's definitely what gets me up in the morning looking at the cityscape around me and thinking from the lessons I've learned from Tokyo, what could we change? How could our cities 
grow and become more dynamic and inclusive. That's awesome. I think it is very cool that you know you're able to arrive at that point without okay, you know, you spent years as as an urban planner or something and then moved into that. But it was this sort of you know, like you talk about in the book about a lot about you know this idea of sort of an emergent urbanism in Tokyo, emergent expertise almost, if you will. Yeah. One additional note on this for our, our listeners, something I thought of where Joe talked about there's sort of this color palette, if you will, of different sort of types of communities and urban forms and and all of these things listeners might find interesting a, a good ongoing case study in this scott buyer from the market urbanist report is in the middle of a, a world tour world cities tour he's hitting sort of every continent and cities and i don't know how many countries but a lot of them principally in the global south too okay is he going to go to tokyo do we know that? i'm not sure if that's on his list it might be he's working i believe through latin america at the moment but yeah, he's lots of really interesting stuff so far out of Central and South America, both his writing and also pictures of, of city scenes and places and people that he's met so far. So that's that's something listeners that enjoy this conversation might enjoy checking out. That being said, let's go ahead and jump in a little bit to Tokyo urbanism. And part of the framing you set up in the book here is that there's sort of this middle ground between what you might call chaotic urbanism and corporate urbanism and that there's this middle piece which has played out through a lot of tokyo but is is maybe under attack in some ways something that we might think of as emergent urbanism so can you explain what you mean by these different forms what the current dynamics of these competing urbanisms if you will how that's playing out sure so chaotic urbanism isn't necessarily our term but there there are a lot of people who've analyzed Tokyo and other cities as being these like sites of chaos. And then you have large scale corporate mega developers come in and that's kind of its own ordered development out of chaos. Or in the past, you had major municipal urban planners, the modernists coming in saying, we are going to, from the public sector, redesign the city from whole cloth. And it's really a question of top down versus bottom up that a lot of the the parts of Tokyo that are what everyone loves when they come to visit, that everyone's blown away by, are not top-down design. The top-down designed parts of Tokyo either feel like a luxury mall or just a kind of a, a series of bland concrete mallscapes. It's, it's the parts of Tokyo that feel the most Tokyo-esque and beloved are not the parts of the city that were designed from the top down for the most part, whether to be that way, whether that's designed from the top down by government or by private large-scale developers. That said, some of them came bottom up from private development. Some of them came bottom up from the government saying, hey, in the post-World War II black markets that were all over Tokyo, those little black marketeer stalls selling stuff, you know, hey, rather than throwing you in jail for being a black marketeer, we're going to build a cheap, quick series of market stalls, and they're all identical, and we'll assign them by lottery, and then just over the court, and we'll give you the, the property rights to your little stall. And these are near major train stations and some of the the most valuable land on the planet as it happens. But out of those over time and organic evolution, some of them have become the most beloved districts of the city. Golden Guy, the microbar district is, is one that's world famous and that a lot of listeners of this podcast may have, may have at least heard of. That's kind of what we are focused on is understanding that paradox of Tokyo being in many ways one of the most livable cities in the world, however you want to define that, and most beloved cities in the world. But by and large, the parts of it where the government said, we're going to design this space anew, or a mega developer even said, we are going to design this space anew. We're going to design a district of the city from our plan have ended up not carrying any of of that charm. Yeah, I I think this is Interesting, right? Obviously, the use of the phrase emergent sort of invokes sort of Hayekian notions 
of sort of discovery. But I think there's, in your elaboration there, I think also evokes kind of an Ostromian polycentric order as well. The nice thing about being a fake academic who got into this from a very concrete angle is that I still don't know what Hayekian or Ostromian truly implies. And, and, and as, the meme, as the meme goes at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. But I got feedback on a, on a monograph I did on Tokyo Microspaces that said, can you insert a little bit more Ostromian analysis in here? And like, someone who understands what that means can take my concrete data on Tokyo microspaces and how they function and tell me what the Ostromian lens on that is, I'm sure. (laughs) We'll have to hook you up with a co-author from the George Mason sphere. My unfortunate habit in this is that Tokyo has aspects that work wonderfully because they're pretty libertarian, aspects that work wonderfully because they're pretty socialist, aspects that work terribly because they're pretty libertarian, aspects that work terribly because they're pretty socialist. It doesn't fit neatly into the kind of the battle lines or same thing with like NIMBY YIMBY. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't fit neatly into the battle lines that are drawn in in America and especially American urbanist or housing Twitter. And I, when possible, I like to work with organizations on the lessons from Tokyo that are kind of in tension or in friction with the dominant ideology of their organization, because I think that kind of underlying creative tension helps break new ground. Well, Yeah, it produces the most intellectually interesting results. Yeah. Why is the libertarian approach or the doctrinaire libertarian answer to this urban problem, why is it working poorly in this respect? in Tokyo. And you and you can also talk about the other areas in which it's working quite well. You know, you have megacorps dividing the transit and suburban development between them in, in ways that actually overall work pretty effectively, for example. But that's one thing that I've found can be a positive in the book is I, I've, I found I, I've done talks before audiences that were a mix of like leftists and libertarians, but all very invested in good faith in livable cities beyond just their own personal profit incentive as say as a, as a developer or something like that and really talking about a city outside of our daily experience here here in America that has lessons for both sides i think really enables a lot of good faith interactions between spheres of research and academia and activism that don't always interact with each other I agree absolutely, and I, I think that's what what makes sort of urban, these urban discussions one of the most sort of interesting spaces to participate in. Let's talk about sort of one of these tensions, maybe with a concrete example. One of the sort of policy tools that you mentioned that could maybe have some use in sort of helping to preserve, maybe preserve isn't the right word. Maybe that that, that could be a charged word in urbanist circles. How is emergent urbanism sustained? in Tokyo from sort of a policy perspective. And one of the examples that I'm thinking of that I think sort of brings out these factions or this tension, if you will. Yeah, all right. So floor area ratio limits are are sort of a a tool that you can say, okay, you set up a particular FAR and that functionally prohibits, you know, maybe some big skyscraper from being developed. And instead, you know, only something smaller scale gets built. So that's a policy tool. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, Right. In, in, in some places, this has kind of been used to potentially disastrous effects. I think Mumbai is often kind of the poster child for when restrictions go too far. So how does Tokyo retain, from a policy perspective, retain its emergent urbanism without putting the brakes on you know, San Francisco style where you can't do anything? Yeah, that's the one key thing, I think, is that a lot of these questions like FAR and neighborhood preservation and things like that, redevelopment, they take on such a different tenor when we're talking in an environment of scarcity, especially housing scarcity. When there, it doesn't feel like there are enough places for people to live. And so housing costs are spiraling and everyone is trying to claw their way to an acceptable life and seeing other groups in the city as in conflict with their ability to do that. And, and the flip side of that also is that for, I think, the average American, 
who's a homeowner, their home is basically their primary retirement savings account, their main store of value. And so you get just an incredible sense of threatening their home appreciation. You're threatening their plan for how they sustain themselves for the rest of their life oftentimes. And so it's this environment that lends itself to zero-sum thinking and thinking from a place of scarcity or deprivation, which is not always a charitable place. And just the fact that Tokyo, and this is the great thing about a rail city, because Tokyo is hyper-suburban. A lot of people don't realize this. Tokyo's daytime population is a fraction of its nighttime population. Tokyo is very suburban, but they're railway suburbs rather than automobile suburbs. And that makes all the difference in the world in terms of commuter development patterns, you name it. You get patterns in Tokyo on things like FAR that work quite well in Tokyo's spatial structure with Tokyo's housing politics. A big example of that is what I like to call pocket neighborhoods. Pocket neighborhood is usually, you take kind of an old school square neighborhood surrounded by major highway style arterial roads, you know, like six lanes in total kind of roads. And that neighborhood, that old school neighborhood, you might have kind of a labyrinth of narrow streets inside that are tricky to navigate if you don't know where you're going. And those are often a century ago, they may have been agricultural paths or things like that. A very old school, low rise neighborhood with a more intimate character. And so then you build these more modern buildings, much taller and modern buildings around the outside. Some of those are commercial. Some of those are apartment buildings, just kind of forming a perimeter, like a square box around that neighborhood. That ends up actually working really wonderfully because the old school neighborhood kind of keeps its classic charming character, but you still get a density of office and residential and commercial space on the outside. But then also it helps shield the neighborhood within from traffic, for example, because if you're trying to get across town, you don't cut through the labyrinth you don't know, you just take the main arterial roads. So it shows different traffic from just kind of the intrusions of of the outside, but also as most and foremost from disasters, fire, earthquakes and fire, big risk in Japan. And so having these wide arterial roads with modern fireproof buildings means that the older, often more wooden construction within those pocket neighborhoods is more disaster protected. And then the old mom and pop businesses inside that neighborhood, they are getting daytime traffic from all the office workers who work in the modern towers on the outside and the uh, apartment residents. And so they are getting more appreciated and more valued And then also a key difference with America that's just like, to me, the single biggest night and day difference, the zoning in the most residentially zoned parts of Japan, because it's national zoning, the most residential level of zoning, you can put in the bottom floor of your row house by right, a small bar, restaurant, workshop boutique, classroom, medical practice, you name it. So walking through these neighborhoods, it's not just a series of houses that have no relation to you. It's all these old little mom and pop businesses. And some of them are owned by the old folks living upstairs. Some of them are young people coming in who just want to try a little project with cheap rent and you know the old guy who owns the house upstairs, he's just happy to have some nice young kids around trying things versus being old and bored. So you get this, this vibrant, intimate, walkable urbanism that's attractive to everyone. That to me is a model that, you know, in America, everyone would say, of course, what about the parking? But <laughs> if you can set aside the parking part for a second, that's the other thing. You have to Parking is, there's no free parking, basically, in all of Tokyo. You either paying an absurd amount of money to park somewhere, or if you have a parking space on your property, which is rare, you have to prove 
to a car dealership that you have a place to park your car before you are allowed to buy that car. So it's just not designed with cars in mind. Though the interesting thing is it's also not designed with crosstown biking in mind either. Like, cause that's a lot of times is the alternative in, in Western cities, you know, like Amsterdam, places like that is a bike city where everyone bikes across town. It's designed with walking and public transit in mind and local biking. The idea that you have like your little one speed, two speed bike with a basket on the front, just for, you know, little popping around the neighborhood errands, that sort of thing. Sure. But if you're going across town, you take the train for the most part. So it's a different model, but I think a really powerful one that leads to great neighborhoods. That answer hit on so many things that I wanted to to talk about in this conversation. I'll drop another little notion here for our George Mason friends. When you were talking about how Tokyo doesn't have this sort of scarcity mindset with regard to housing and that sort of thing, in a sense, uh, Tokyo may have sort of solved Gordon Tullock's transitional gains trap about sort of compensating the losers from new things and, and, and change. So I think that that's particularly interesting. Well, that's one possibility. Another possibility is, so a big part of the reason why, first off, with Tokyo housing construction numbers, you, you got to, and how much do they build housing? You got to be careful with those numbers because a lot of times you're tearing down an old house to build a new one. And not necessarily with more units or anything like that. It's Mm -hmm. the idea of, do you want to buy a used house is more more of an uncommon or unusual thing, though it's becoming more common in Japan as compared to that being the normal thing for the most part in, in, in most of the United States. And one big, big reason for that was that earthquake standards, safety standards, building processes and things like that have historically been like leaps and bounds in each generation. And so an old house is considered an unsafe house in a place where everything is, not everything, but a lot of things are, are heavily defined by preparation for the next disaster and me- memory of previous disasters. Japan gets a lot of natural disasters. That's starting to change though, as at this point, Japanese building standards are among really the very highest in the world. I should also mention that also, if, you, if your ex- expectation is that whoever buys your house is going to tear it down and build a new one, then you're not going to invest a ton in costly maintenance and remodeling and things like that for the most part. And so then you get into, it's not just an old house, it's an old and likely poorly maintained house. It becomes a necessity anyway. Yeah. It's a lemon economy, I think is the term. Mm-hmm. But these days, Tokyo or Japanese building standards, I should say, have gotten so high and there are these uh, government incentives for what they call 100-year homes, homes built to last 100 years, that it may no longer be the case going forward that it's just the bulk of the value is in the land and not the house, and your house is a depreciating asset. And so what if modern construction in Tokyo, what if it starts to be an appreciating asset like so much American housing has been in cities and things? And if the economics start to look more like housing in the rest of the world, and and this is something where for a long time, a lot of kind of more orientalist writers about Japan, they would talk about how it's, well, in Japan, you know, you buy a used house, you're inhabiting the sins of the, in the tragedies of the previous owner. And it's like, yeah, a lot of apartment buildings in New York don't have a 13th floor either, you know, yeah, super <laughs> exist. But money matters, regulations matter, like incentives matter. Don't leap towards a cultural essentialist explanation if you can all help it. It's la- it's both lazy, uh, you know, sometimes it's racist. It's just not a great way to actually understand what's going on or predict the future because if you're looking at it as a cultural essentialist thing, you might be missing these changing. Right, you're, you're stuck in time. Yeah, incentives. Yeah, it's a lot of the, that's the other, that was part of why Jorge and I really wanted to do this book also is because a lot of the, the airy Tokyo, a land of contrast kind of writing, it could have been written 20 years ago or basically any time post bubble era, really, you know, after the, the bubble burst in the 80s. Because 
it's so little of it actually relates to like anything on the ground. It's all pitched in this kind of, well, Tokyo is an outgrowth of the immutable Japanese character. But you go back a century and all the like racist stereotypes about Japan were the opposite stereotypes. Like, oh, chaos, noisiness, laziness, blah, blah, blah. Either Japanese culture careened from one extreme to the other, or what's much more obviously the case the material factors changed and culture is always a relevant point of discussion, but it's not the main point here. That's kind of a a digression, but I think it's important to note, and this is something where my weird experience with Japan really helps is because I think a lot of people, they come to Japan and their only impression of engaging with Japanese people, if they don't speak Japanese, their only impression of engaging Japanese people is the very sort of English speaking globalist, well-to-do Tokyo cohort, whether in customer service or in business or things like that. And that's like if you have no experience of America and your entire understanding of what Americans are like is you stayed with John Kerry's extended family and it's all like Boston Brahmins or something <laughs> like that. You know, it's There's a whole other Japan out there. There's a whole other America out there. And when I first lived in Japan, I was living next to a truck stop on Japan's version of Route 66 with a retired cop and his wife, an elderly host family. And my first introduction to Japan, even before I I lived in Tokyo, was basically the opposite of every study you see about like, you know, Japanese culture is like blah, blah, blah. And so that's something I really, I really want to emphasize is for all of this stuff, don't default to a cultural explanation because you don't have the granular information. Search out the granular information, the policies, the the economic factors, all of it that actually explains what's going on. Yeah, I agree. And I think sort of this is what you've explained here, like really, I think shines through in your work on this topic. One additional quick note on your earlier point. It didn't hit me when I was reading, but as, as you were talking about these, what you called the types of pocket neighborhoods, it actually... Obviously, there's differences, but it actually reminds me quite a bit of Shenzhen's urban villages, where you have these sort of historic sort of villages that were sort of given these protected spaces, you know, while at the same time, just outside, you know, Shenzhen was sort of springing up overnight. And, you know, these communities were able to benefit from that and use their property to benefit from that as things changed around them. Interesting. That's an interesting uh, intersection between my my day job and my nights and weekends job <laughs> in that I haven't done so much reading on urbanism in China simply because I can't go to China anymore. My day job means mm. that I cannot go back to mainland China. So I've just kind of, I've been interested in Taiwanese urbanism, that sort of thing, but I haven't followed developments across China over the last decade that closely. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, if, if you're okay with just books, CCI, we can recommend you some good oh, ones. I'd love that. Yeah. One additional question on some of these earlier points. You mentioned how in some of these residential areas and sort of these classic alleyway neighborhoods, right, the, the little shops and, and commercial spaces, do you have a, an idea of, is most of that owner-occupied or rented? Do you have a sense of, of what that split looks like? Uh, something I found fascinating more broadly in Tokyo is it matters so much what type of landlord you have. I find that's true in Tokyo and in New York. Are you your own landlord or are you renting from a random individual or a small local landlord operation? Or are you a line on a spreadsheet to a large corporate landlord operation? And that, it just makes all the difference in the world because if you're lying on a spreadsheet, there's always going to be that pressure and corporations tend to maximize profit. And so there's always going to be that pressure to maximize the numbers on that spreadsheet and to push spaces towards their most economically efficient usage. And the question I like to ask more or less, in whether it's in America or the equivalent question in Japan, is why, when I find an interesting small business in an area that's pretty developed. It's like, why has this not become a Chipotle or a Starbucks, essentially? Why is this interesting thing still here and not replaced with a profitable, predictable chain or, or something along those lines or, or something aimed at a very upscale audience that's 
marketing, you know, artisanal locavore, blah, 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 at, at incredible prices. It just overwhelmingly seems to come down to what type of landlord do you have? And so I found it's a pretty, you get a huge mix between it's the guy living up above his shop versus renting it out to younger folks. But it's definitely skewing more towards the renting out over time for elderly homeowners, simply because a lot of them are not necessarily wanting to run a small niche business with no profit in their golden years. I mean, that's some do, of course, you know, the, you know, the, the all the mom and pop ramen places, you know, grandma making her bento boxes and selling them out front for office workers and stuff like that. And I love that, but their kids don't necessarily want to take it over. In some ways, a lot of these niche businesses, it's really a passionate young person's game. Like I, I know a guy, his name is Sukasa, and he's like trilingual, I think. I think English, Spanish, Japanese. And so he always goes, Mikasa Tsukasa. But he's a fantastic Scandinavian style baker. And he got scouted through his baking on Instagram to open a small spot. And he had traveled instead of doing, you know, the salary man life or that kind of corporate world stuff. He, he traveled and apprenticed in Scandinavia and bread making. And, and then when they came back and, that energy of, I want to do something that really excites me. It doesn't make a ton of money, but it's where my passion is. And I want to pour in the hours and a little space. And that's young passion in a country where, and this goes back to kind of the socialism angle, in a country where you don't have to worry about where your health insurance is coming from, your employer or not, where you aren't crushed by student loans or saving for your kid's college education in the same way that you necessarily are in America, in a country where there's tons and tons of supports financially set up that benefit unprofitable small businesses. You can keep the sales tax you collect up to a certain amount that's nothing to Chipotle, but means a massive difference to a guy running a four-seat cartography-themed bar for cartography enthusiasts, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's actually a real bar. Uh, the <laughs> cartography bar is amazing. Any map nerds seek me out on Twitter and I can steer you to the hidden cartography bar. <laughs> you get what I'm saying, right? Like there, yeah. there's actually a lot of neighborhoods are, are in an interesting transition between the old artisans who a lot of times were kind of working or low or lower middle class essentially and just ending up in these situations because that was how they eked out a living and then the young kind of diy artsy kids who are really taking up this legacy and not wanting to just take on boring corporate jobs and work themselves too hard and they're coming to appreciate each other you know the young whippersnappers are coming to appreciate the old old guys craftsmanship and heritage and everything and the old guys are appreciating you know like well maybe they've got tattoos or, or weird fashions and they don't necessarily look like my kind of people at first glance but you know they they got heart and you know it's my kid didn't take over the family business he's working a you know an office job somewhere and you know doesn't come home as much as I'd like and so you know it's the unexpected inheritors of a legacy is kind of the intergenerational story in a, in a lot of these old school neighborhoods. And I find that fascinating and wonderful. Yeah, no, that is really interesting, especially since I think we've seen like a just insane decline in like intergenerational interactions across the board, at least in the United States. I think it's cool how the sort of built environment sort of keeps those kind of interactions alive. Yeah. Uh, well, let me, let me tell you another, another one for Tokyo that really makes a huge difference is Shintoism, not necessarily as a religion, as a but as a practice. I'm a non-theistic Jew, shall we say. I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm, like, I'm more cultural Jewish. I'm not on my knees praying to God. Shintoism is pretty relatable to me and how it's often practiced in Tokyo because it, it's the Shinto, the little shrines, especially the portable shrines in uh, different neighborhoods of Tokyo. There are all sorts of festivals where the portable shrine, you got to get four usually men, not always, but usually men with decent, semi-decent muscle to them to lift this portable shrine on their four shoulders and kind of carry it around to represent the neighborhood in the, in the local festival or things like that. And 
the young folks moving into a neighborhood, their initial thing might be like, well, you know, getting involved with the local neighborhood council and that stuff. That's kind of the old people thing. Yeah, I'm living here, but I'm, I got my whole, you know, city boy life across the city and stuff. I'm not Mr. Neighborhood, but the old guys, you know, then they, well, we need some young folks to carry the shrine for the festival. And then they're the, the young folks will be like, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll carry the shrine for the festival. That's fun. And the old folks are like, ah, gotcha. You know, that's how I started when I was in my you know, 20s, 30s. I thought, yeah, I'm too, I'm too cool for this. And then, and next thing you know, you know, they're like, oh yeah, could you volunteer for this one thing? And yeah, sure. And, you know, it's these practices that make a neighborhood into a place where people know each other. And, they, and this is also huge for disaster resilience, like the ways that communities came to each other in the aftermath of the the 311 tsunami and earthquake in Japan, this is something that's a real concern with the um, move to mass high-rise apartments out in in a lot of suburbs and things like that is in those environments, nobody knows their neighbor. Like when I lived in a very big, sleek, modern building in New York for a year and a half, I didn't know any of my neighbors, you know, maybe wave hi to someone you've seen a few times, but that's it. Like those kinds of things, they make a difference. So that's not only the spatial environment and the zoning that allows interesting little small businesses that don't necessarily have to be super profit driven. They just have to not be so profoundly unprofitable that it's unsustainable. That combined with traditions and things like that, that kind of get people involved in the spatial dynamics. And the fact that you do feel like you're in kind of a secluded world when you're inside one of these pocket neighborhoods, like you're a part of of something and not just walking through an endless suburbia, say, or a Levittown or something like that. All of that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So something that I think has kind of come out of our, our, our conversation and, and one of the examples that it, it makes me think of when you, when you talked about the proof of parking policies and the restrictions on you know, on street parking and, and other these kind of things, it doesn't seem like there's an expectation among the residents of Tokyo that you kind of get to live your life externality free in the sense that in American cities, there seems to be kind of a, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too attitude where any sort of policies that would sort of force you to sort of internalize the, like the social costs of your actions is extremely opposed. There's no great way, as far as I can tell, right? There's no great wave of opposition to say the proof of parking policies. Maybe not. One thing with that is the zoning policies with great effort, you can find ways to slightly modify or tweak the national zoning policies at your local level in some cases. But for the most part, with these zoning policies set at the national level, there's it makes it so you, you can't fight City Hall. Whereas in the States, you really can fight City Hall and zoning. And yeah. NIMBYs especially are an, are an incredibly powerful political force in many cities that NIMBYs are, are only now starting to catch up to a bit. And so the movement to try and get zoning rules, especially housing and things like that, pushed up to higher levels where the loudest people at your local city council meeting who are there every meeting and it's like, do they have a job? Who knows? They're always here. Those people not being able to just exert their will without, you know, the the people who are just have their opinions but are just casually living their lives and not showing up hardcore to fight for Yimby policies, not getting them not getting drowned out. That's really a, a function of moving it to the highest level up that you can, I think. And that's something that realistically in America will probably not ever be able to do at the federal level, just based on how the constitution works and everything. But definitely the more we can kick it up to the state level, I think the better the outcomes are likely to be, especially when you have a, a history in the in the states that's it's kind of a, a different history than you do in, in Japan of white flight suburbanism, of people fleeing cities often for reasons of racism and classism and things like that, and to try and take their their tax dollars with them 
to different school districts and, and different municipalities, the more you can short circuit stuff like that, for example, at the state level, mandating more equitable distribution of school resources versus rich school districts get all the money, poor school districts don't, that kind of thing. That really can help to defuse some of those politics, especially in an American context. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I want to change gears a little bit. So we've sort of been talking about things more sort of maybe on, maybe call it a planning level, but we haven't really touched on elements maybe of what you might call placemaking. When we're talking about placemaking, let's also talk about charter cities, because that's as a, a form of placemaking, ultimately, among other things. Yes, that's a good point. I found your discussion of greenery in the book really fascinating, especially since that most of the urban greenery in, in Tokyo is is informal in nature. It's you know yeah. a, a person or a business you know putting some some plants out on the curb or whatever. Tokyo seems to have successfully resisted the kind of useless, really wide open green space brain worms that have sort of colonized planning in, in, in the US and elsewhere. Culture probably plays plays a role here, right, with people sort of maintaining gardens historically and that kind of thing. But is this also sort of a, a function of the pervasiveness of small lot sizes? Like what, what else is maybe going on here that keeps greenery this way? Lots that go basically right up to the street or the alleyway or the pathway without a whole lot. No one's got a, a lawn that they're tending for the most part. I mean Right. There's no there's no front setbacks. I shouldn't speak in absolute terms. Not no one, but it's not the sure. it's not the default the way that it is having a lawn is the default in American suburbia, for example. And yeah, so it's putting out potted plants and things like that, just kind of casually beautifying the spaces is a thing going back to, you know, the Edo period. 1800s. It's got a, a long tradition and it's not considered a great art of Japan or anything like that. It's just a thing people do. There's actually like a street horticulture society that loves cataloging them. Yeah, shout out to Subaltens, but they're just lovable weirdos, you know? <laughs> it's not like widely recognized as a integral part of, of Japanese culture, though it is something that you notice visually so much when you walk around. And there, there are some huge parks in Tokyo, and there are some green belt walking kind of strip parks and things like that. These things do exist in Tokyo too, to an extent, but it's less the idea of, of the, the default. And public spaces where a bunch of people go and hang out, I mean, you can take the train there. If you, if you want, like for example, picnicking in the park during cherry blossom season is a near universal part of life in Tokyo and picnics in the park is you know people go picnic blankets and stuff like that hop on the train you all meet there and it's so parks are still there when you want them but the idea that a park is this dominant form of public space is not the thing there and i think part of that is also when you have this maze of local alleyways and things like that filled with little interesting little mom and pop businesses that becomes a kind of public or semi-public space. Mm -hmm. It's not just you walk outside your front door and there's other houses you can't enter and there's streets for cars. If I want to walk out my front door from the house that I grew up in in Southern California, I got to walk through the, lo the local park, local green space, because otherwise, where am I walking? I'm just walking down streets for cars. And it's just a very different urban environment. And so that's something where I think it's, if we can think kind of in, as a more about the cohesive whole, how we're creating uh, an urban environment that allows for community and serendipity and discovery and the feelings of belonging and that, that emotional color palette especially for people unlike ourselves or who are in different social strata or diff different communities, you name it, that can allow for a, a more organic design than simply saying, we have determined scientifically that parks are good and therefore you need this many parks per square miles or per thousand people. That kind of uh, algorithmic formula, different contexts can produce very different kinds of equilibriums. The, I'm not an econ person, but I, if I vaguely recall correctly, the idea of like Nash equilibria, the idea that there, <laughs> there can be multiple stable equilibria rather than a single best equilibrium point 
I'm probably completely butchering that concept, but that's kind of where I'm going with this. I think you're close. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Each chapter of the book covers a different style of Tokyo neighborhood and offers lessons which which can be learned by observing those, those different types of neighborhoods. And these lessons range from, like we were talking about before, placemaking issues like usage of, of greenery or, or, or how signage is done to sort of bigger, more abstract matters like thinking about yeah. you know generating agglomeration economies. And these lessons that are put forward, you know, they're from particular types of neighborhoods, but they're sort of presented in a sort of general way where, where you could broadly apply those lessons to relatively similar types of neighborhoods or places elsewhere. But zooming out maybe to, to a little bit more of a macro view and sort of thinking you know, about the work we're doing with charter cities, let's say one of our partners comes to you and says, you know, I'm building a city and it's in Nigeria or Zambia or, or Honduras or somewhere else. I understand that you know these these places are, are not the same for a variety of reasons, both economics, politics, and everything else as as, as as Tokyo. But what should I know from the experience of Tokyo? First off, you should know to call me. Like any <laughs> charter cities project, I'm always someone like I, I describe myself as a little bit pessimistic on charter cities to you offline, I think, but I'm still interested. And I, I also I'm someone who wants to be involved and my motive is not particularly financial. It's I have a lot of thoughts on relatively low cost ways to make cities of the future, whether they be charter cities or just evolutions of current cities, more dynamic and livable from what I've learned studying Tokyo. So anyone listening to this who has a charter cities project, you can find me on Twitter, through my website, you name it. I would love to sign whatever NDA you want me to sign and give you <laughs> thoughts, feedback, you name it. Yeah, day job in national security. I'm used to signing NDAs. So <laughs> but so just saying that front out, but one of the the key questions is a lot of charter cities projects, they are thinking primarily in terms of economic deregulation and the ways in which that lends itself to a streamlined city that has a natural economic engine to it and kind of the building the Singapore of Nigeria or the Singapore of Honduras or you name it. And that certainly can be a part of a picture. But at that point, you're as a starting point, that's more of a special economic zone than a city. And what makes a city, what makes a city this this like living, breathing ecosystem or organism, which I like that way of thinking about on multiple levels, because if you design your city right, or if your city turns out right, it will be like a resilient organism. You look at maps of Tokyo pre and post Great Kanto earthquake of 1923 or the firebombing of World War II, these events that just demolished huge swaths of the city. You look at the street maps pre and post and the sections of the city that regrew pretty organically, it's almost like a lost limb, like the, the maps and, and usage and pathways and stuff so similar. That's much more resilient than like a top-down project, like what the Saudis are, are trying right now, where it's just, we have declared that we will invest to have the best of everything and it will be a great investment climate. That's not a city. It could be yeah. layered on top of a city concept. But my starting question is, how are interesting people who are going to build their personal serendipitous dream that is not particularly profitable going to build that in your city? What Walk me through that spatially, economically. Who are they? What were they like before they came here? Were they a middle-income collar worker who takes their savings to buy a house in your new charter city and then they decide they want to telework part-time and then try their hand at something interesting in the bottom floor? Are you considering building cubes of buildings with, with a ton of little micro space stalls inside that can be rented out very cheaply and with lax restrictions on what sort of thing you're doing, but with some sort of arts council or, or you name it, pushing to make sure that these aren't just going to sleek chain profit maximizing businesses. Like, What is your street layout going to be that both serves the needs of industry 
and creates feelings of intimacy as you walk through a neighborhood, but also intimacy, but also openness to people coming in. All of these questions have possible answers. And I could give you a half dozen possible answers to each of those questions. And some of them would probably mutually contradict each other. There are multiple ways to skin this cat, but it has to be part of the thinking early on, or then it's it's just a total roll of the dice. And given how, basically given how much we know about how to be economically efficient in designing special economic zones and things like that, how many case studies we have of SEZs and everything, the econ efficiency piece is in a roll of the dice scenario, the econ efficiency piece is probably going to win out. For the long term, that needs to be balanced with other concerns. And in Tokyo, even some mega developers know some of the mega developers who redeveloped whole swaths of the city, you'll find the same mom and pop ramen place that was there before is still there after and still serving their ramen for $4 a bowl, which makes utterly no sense under the, the new redevelopment rate rents and everything. It's the developers decided, yeah, it wouldn't feel like the neighborhood anymore if the Mama Takata's ramen wasn't there. And so it's we're going to give them a sweetheart deal for that little space to make sure it's still there. Because that in the long term, our value comes not just from the here and now, what can we rent out? What does our market research say? It comes from building a place that is a place and not just in somewhere that's simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. And that's something that I want to be putting my ideas into practice. I've actually been engaging a little bit with, there's a camp at Burning Man that does kind of a Burning Man version of the microbar district in Tokyo, Golden Guy, uh, except they oh, call cool. it- yeah, they call it the Golden Guy G-U-Y, like the you know, like the man, <laughs> the Burning Man. I started talking with them about the next time I go back to Burning Man, what we could do to make what we could do to infuse some of the social dynamics of the real Golden Guy and Tokyo urbanism into their microspaces. So yeah, I think the things I'm talking about are not incompatible with macro level profit seeking. Obviously, charter cities groups are for the most part looking to spin up economic engines, and that's entirely fair. But they require recognizing that at the micro level, you need a process for reaching decisions that are not primarily driven by profit, sometimes in some parts of the project, in order to create an ecosystem that is self-sustaining and where the parts reinforce or engage organically with each other. Yeah, I, I think this is great advice, and I think we may have found a new little addendum project to the urban planning guidelines that we published last year for charter city developers that tries to get at this kind of emergence phenomenon. Oh yeah. It tries to tries to operationalize that. So I think I just found some some more work for uh, Heba, our, our resident urban researcher. <laughs> if Heba would like a co-author, I am always, always, always happy to collaborate. We'll definitely arrange that. Before we wrap up, I, I, want, I did want to hit some questions on China and some national security questions, if you're up for it. Sure, though. I, Depending on the questions, I, I may tell you I can't speak about X, Y, and Z because of, sure. of my day job, but sure. Sure. Feel free to veto. I saw in your Twitter bio that you're working on a book about China's information sort of warfare strategy and, and capabilities. How does the recent international restrictions on, on semiconductor exports to China impact that area? I mean, that is absolutely huge. And that's and it's it's more huge than a lot of people realize because some of the advancements in China semiconductors where you see headlines, for example, saying, oh, they're catching up on this metric or that metric, a lot of them are essentially not totally, but ways of gaming the metric to an extent that are not economical or scalable in the same ways that reaching those benchmarks from the Western and Taiwan-based uh, semiconductor industries are are achieving. So definitely, I mean, semiconductors are an unsung linchpin of the modern military strategic balance between any two major powers. Also, as 
as the son of my mother is a was in the semiconductor industry. So I find it cool now that I, I get to talk about <laughs> work with my mom, with her her past work a little bit in ways that I didn't get to before. I think it's very, very important. And it's also critically, it's a, it's a bipartisan understanding. And this goes back to even like 2016. I was involved in a, in a volunteer advisory capacity with the Hillary Clinton campaign back in 2016. And I can say that if Hillary had won, that a lot of folks were, were talking about focusing more intensely on this stuff. And just as you saw in different ways under both the Trump and Biden administrations, there's a strong bipartisan consensus on treating the semiconductor industry as as an absolute critical area of national security. And uh, I think that'll endure. Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be curious to see how that sort of continues to play out and, and what the sort of Chinese response will be. There's been a lot in the past year, I think, written about sort of what Taiwan can learn from Ukraine's experience and, and their ongoing war with Russia, sort of given the David and Goliath sort of dynamics. What, if anything, is China learning from Russia's experience in, in that war? And how much really relevant learning for China is there given sort of the different geography, economics, politics, ob- objectives, and, and so on? Yeah, so... Funny you should ask that, since I actually I've I'm working with a think tank on a major research project on what China is and is not learning from the Ukraine conflict, and that'll hopefully be out sometime later this year. Especially once we can see how the conflict ultimately plays out, and and so see what China's taking away. But I think one of the I think if the, if they are honest with themselves in the PLA and the People's Liberation Army, they should be taking away a lot of skepticism about how an invasion of Taiwan would go. It's a lot of things that Russia botched in the invasion of Ukraine. Yes, China is better prepared militarily in Ru- than Russia in some aspects, maybe, but. Russia only had to mount a land invasion, order of magnitude less complex than an amphibious invasion. Russia had a presence inside Ukraine with like territory under control through proxies going back to 2014. Russia has had serious operational experience all around the world, you know, in Syria, you name it, Wagner Group, things like that, that China just has no modern operational experience on that scale with that degree of complexity. I mean, they're trying to evolve their training practices, but they're nowhere on that level. I mean, the last war China fought was against Vietnam. You know, it's at this point nearly half a century ago, just an utterly different era of of warfare. And there is, you know, a, a real fear in the Chinese Communist Party, that a, a failed invasion of Taiwan would not only look at, you know be embarrassing or, or things like that, that it could lead to the potentially the fall of the CCP. So that's just an incredible risk to take. And as, as we're seeing with Ukraine, it, it's very, very difficult to predict what the outcome will be, and especially in systems centered around a paramount leader, like the way that both China and Russia are, are centered largely around paramount leaders, there can be a real incentive to give an extra rosy picture up the chain because that's how you get promoted. That's how you look good, which then can make it hard for for top-level leadership to get an accurate picture of what actually their chances are. And in the realm of information, let's say, for example, that information warfare Let's say that you're the guy in the Chinese military, just to be hyper-simplistic here, whose job it is to be targeting US transcom and other logistics capabilities, basically to make it hard for Americans to move forces into the theater in a conflict scenario. And so you're targeting our networks, our C4ISR networks, our command and control networks through network warfare, electronic warfare, things like that, uh, information warfare. Do you take down those systems 
or not? Do they does it work or not? If you take them down, will they be back up and running or backups up and running within a minute, an hour, a day, a week? To what extent will any of that actually accomplish your objective? Let's say your information warfare initial strikes succeed beyond anything, your wildest hopes, and then the weather shifts in the Taiwan Strait, which tends to have really finicky weather, and suddenly it's no longer good weather to launch an amphibious invasion. And everyone now realizes that's what you're planning, you know, and you've lost the element of surprise. Like there are, and now play that out across a ton of different systems uh, across systems impacting air superiority, systems impacting civilian mobilization in Taiwan, a hundred different things. How do you predict any of that to predict an outcome? And if you're sitting there in the Chinese military, you're getting so much of what you want in the world just by forever, you know, growing your forces and demanding to be taken seriously as a saber-rattling big power. At the end of the day, you know, especially when you look at their, their vulnerabilities, I, I did a study in grad school on China looking at, at how like a huge chunk of their energy imports comes through the Strait of Malacca and how do you even try and become resilient to that in the event of a conflict or a possible blockade. And, and there's just so many ways, if you're China, that things can go horribly wrong. And you got a pretty good thing going right now, you know, ongoing development, ongoing growth of strength. All of these things, to me, weigh heavily against it being smart for China to initiate a conflict. Over, over Taiwan. And I think Ukraine so far, at least, would reinforce that because we as a country have much deeper strategic interests in Taiwan than we do in Ukraine, is my assessment. I think we have a deep strategic interest in Ukraine, but I think we have an even deeper strategic interest in Taiwan. Japan, for that matter, retired uh, head of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Forces I think the way he once put it to me was that a Taiwan under mainland Chinese control would be a dagger aimed at the heart of Japan. What other countries in the region would do in response? Um, you know, we've been pretty muted overall in you know to avoid conflict with Russia, obviously, in terms of in terms of how we deal with the Ukraine conflict. This is not America doing our utmost. This is a, this is America doing a bit. To me, all of this says if you're if you're China looking at Ukraine, the lesson is stick with the good thing. Don't poke the bear. You just gotta kick the can down the road for lack of other good options. Yeah, I guess we shall see. Yeah, hopefully not. Here's right? hoping. But, yeah. Uh, so to wrap up, you mentioned that you're a regular participant in Ephemeral, and that's that was yeah. kind of one of your connections, maybe before you even knew it, to sort of Charter City's world. So, yeah. so first, what, what is Ephemeral, and what's been your experience with it? Ephemeral is a temporary floating city slash festival that about a thousand of us build every summer outside of the Bay Area, out in the waters of the Delta. And it grew out of the seasteading movement initially, but is no longer just or primarily about that. I think it's it's more just sort of a motley crew of artists, technologists, boat nomads, radical seasteader and charter cities types, you name it, all just coming together to explore life on the water and just have a good time. I've always been fascinated by subcultures and the way that subcultures work differently in different cities and parts of the world. And so Ephemeral is great for that. But another interesting thing about Ephemeral is the different islands of Ephemeral set different rules for themselves. And that's actually led to a very soft micro form of competitive governance where people with boats or floating platforms or things like that will will join the island 
that most closely mirrors the rules that they want to live under for that week or two weeks or however long they're out there. For example, an island I worked with, we had a fully, we had, we had a lot of people coming in to visit from a lot of places and party and stuff like that. And so we had a fully written out enthusiastic consent policy that people had to read and understand and get a little wristband that proved that they had read and understood it before coming aboard our island. Uh, whereas another island, it might be that they're, they're during the rest of the year, they all know each other. They're all in community with each other. And so they don't, they have strong community norms. They don't see the purpose of that sort of thing. And so they're they're more casual about it and people can decide where they want to link up with. So that competitive governance aspect of seasteading and charter cities, it's a light years different, but it's also the closest thing I can think of in my immediate vicinity of people experimenting with that. It's kind of cool that all the people who are sort of connected to that competitive governance professionally in some way, find a way to make it play out, even if sort of just for fun. Yeah. It's summer camp for weird Silicon Valley nerds. And as a weird DC slash New York slash Tokyo nerd, I, I like flying in for it and, and having a, a weird nerd summit with the other weird nerds. So. <laughs> Well, I, I think we we can for this conversation. I think we'll we'll leave it at the Weird Nerd Summit. Thank you so much for for coming on the show, Joe. This has been really enjoyable enjoyable conversation. Hey, thanks so much. I had an absolutely wonderful time. And hit me up for anything you're interested in, in doing collaboration wise, whether that's real world charter cities projects or talking about more on urbanist guidelines with Heba. Like all of that is totally up my alley. I would love to be a part of it. We definitely will. And again, I, I want listeners to remember the book is Emergent Tokyo, Designing the Spontaneous City. And you can find Joe on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. <laughs>